Please pray with me. Lord, as I speak and as we listen, may it be your word that we hear. Amen. And have a seat. I, I can't tell you what an honor and how humbling it is to stand in this pulpit. I owe a great attitude to this congregation and to this place, um, to Matt, um, to all of you. In the last three years, you've extended many opportunities to me as a young minister. And none of those opportunities have been quite so joyful as spending this past semester serving as interim minister to our college students. And so I, I thank you for that deeply. Our text this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And as befits the traditions of this pulpit, I will give you the opportunity to flip your pages and to ready your number two lead pencils, if you'd like to follow along there. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I've got a bone to pick with God. Maybe you've had a bone to pick with someone. Well, I've got a bit of a bone to pick with God. You see, prunes... Kale, spinach, Brussels sprouts, these belong to this group of foods that are being called superfoods. You've read this, you've seen this. These are nutrient-rich foods. They're very healthy for you. Um, interestingly, what a lot of these foods also have in common is that they taste like dirt. <laughs> um, you, you know what's not a superfood? Cheesecake. Cheesecake is not a superfood. Uh, strawberries, though, I, I've seen one list that includes strawberries as a superfood. Strawberries are pretty good. Um, they're especially good on my cheesecake, though. <laughs> and cheesecake is not a superfood. So what's the deal, God? You see, I, I'm not sure what we call the opposite of a superfood, what that category is. Maybe that's what we mean by junk food. But but I think most of the foods I really like fit into that category. 
And, and so I've got a bone to pick with God because if I could get healthy eating Oreos, I could be a health nut. <laughs> but that's not how it works. And so what's the deal, God? I mean, if broccoli is so good for me, why not just make me to crave broccoli, right? I mean, that makes sense. But in so many ways, the wisdom of God confounds us. The doing and the being of God often seems strange to us. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25 the passage opens, and we're set up with these sort of bilateral categories in verse 18. We're told that, on the one hand, the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but on the other hand, for those being saved, it is the power of God. And so we've got these two groups. We've got those perishing, those being saved, and sort of the dividing line, the, the litmus test down the middle here is the word of the cross. And, and these, these words here, these are present participles. That, that means those right now being saved, those right now perishing. I, I take this to, to be that there's a sense of urgency in it. This is a wake-up call to the Corinthians, I think. Paul's saying, hey you, you Christians in Corinth, you assume that you're the ones being saved. Well, let me paint a picture for you. Let me characterize this. Tell you about the ones being saved, about the ones perishing, and then you tell me where you stand. And now this isn't Paul drawing divisions here. I mean, Certainly, Lord knows, there's enough divisions in Corinth already. However, he's setting this up for us. He wants the Corinthians to think seriously about what it means to be the people of God. And what we know from Paul's correspondence with the Corinthians is that they do have a lot of problems. They have plenty of divisions already. We'll find out in later chapters that at least they've got divisions within their practice of worship. But over and over again, Paul is exhorting them towards unity to overcome these things. Verse 12 of chapter 1 lets us know that there is another set of divisions here as well. Um, we've got divisions between these groups who seem to trace their spiritual heritage to various religious leaders, uh, maybe those who they pay homage to for their faith. So it says... Chapter 1, verse 12, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, and just in case we were about to lose hope, we do have a few that get it right. I follow Christ. And, you know, the thing is, um, Based on proximity, this is probably the divisions that Paul has in mind in this verse. And his corrective exhortation in this instance is, let me tell you a little something about the wisdom of God. You see, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, who we know to be Peter, these are not uh, bad guys to trust, they're not bad guys to follow. These are some pretty astute fellas, I would say. Sure, we meet 
Peter as this lowly, humble, probably illiterate fisherman who's very impulsive. He's continually failing to see the messianic identity that's literally being revealed right before his very eyes. Um, We know the scene of Peter after the crucifixion sitting there. He denies his allegiances, denies Christ three times in order to save his own skin. Yeah, but even Peter has evolved since then. At this point, he's a spirit-filled evangelist the very foundation of Christ's church. He has preached before the multitudes. He's proclaimed before the court of the high priest. And Paul and Apollos, these are educated men, master orators and evangelists in their own right. They could teach accurately, proclaim boldly. These are not bad people to trust. It's not bad wisdom to follow necessarily. And yet, Paul proclaims this message in verse 19. He gives him the words of the prophet Isaiah, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Paul, Apollos, Peter, these are not bad guys to follow. Just know that if you follow due to their wisdom and intelligence, due to their eloquence and charisma, then what you're following is temporary. It will be frustrated. It will be destroyed. It only has meaning if it leads you beyond itself to something that is eternal. And so then comes verse 20, and Paul issues a challenge here. He gives us these bold and confronting questions Verse 20, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I dare you, wise man, stand before the wisdom of God. This calls to my mind a scene from Job 38. Job and his buddies have had their say, they've gotten their word in, and now God is going to speak And he calls out of the storm and he asks, Who is this that obscures my words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, for I will question you and you shall answer me. I wonder if Paul is kind of channeling this scene of bold and accusatory questioning. What Paul's doing here is he's putting the wisdom of the world on trial before us. And what is wisdom of the world. I mean, what's the wisdom of our times? As a culture, I'm not sure that we revere religious scholars, debaters, teachers, philosophers. I mean, not in the way that Greek and Roman culture did. However, there are some real similarities worth considering. It's been noted that by and large, from the first century until today, the standards of popularity haven't changed much. And those are listed as wisdom, power, and money, right? These are the standards of popularity from the first century till now hasn't changed much. Well, I'm going to disagree just slightly, only slightly, nuance it a bit. The modern father of spiritual disciplines, Richard Foster, argues that the three greatest challenges facing the 
Christians in the world today are sex, power, and money. Hang on, Matt, am I allowed to say sex up here? Oh, we're good, okay. Uh, I, I think Foster has a point, though. These are the greatest challenges of our times, and I think that these have really been placed as the standards of popularity in our time, that we pursue sex, power, and money in our world. However, I do think that wisdom has a place in this. I think that we've defined wisdom based on these pursuits. The wise woman or man of this age is the one who knows how to grab hold of sex, power, and money and not let go. And the truly elite in their wisdom are the ones who know how to take what they've grabbed hold of and use it to get more and more and more. This is the wisdom of our age, I think. And so Paul's words still ring true for us. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. You see, we cannot know God by grabbing hold of the wisdom of this world, although we will try. I try. We will seek satisfaction, fulfillment, identity, joy in these things, but we cannot do it. Salvation is not in these things. The Scottish author, poet, minister George MacDonald once wrote that in whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed even more miserably. You see, God in his infinite wisdom, knowing that we would all be captives of the self-gratifying and self-glorifying wisdom of the world, he gave us an out. He confounded our wisdom in the cross. For Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom, and you and I, we seek salvation in things and in people that are perishing. Yet, even so, we're granted a prophetic voice. You and I are called to proclaim Christ and him crucified. This strikes the world as a stumbling block and as foolishness, but this is the truth. The road of self-gratification and self-glorification is the way of those who are perishing, and the cross is the power of God for those being saved. In so many ways, the wisdom of God seems to confound us. It, and I think there's a warning here. There's a warning because we're apt to put our trust in our own eloquence, ability, and prosperity. There's a warning because we're often conflicted between the will of God and sinking our own desires and comforts as they're pressured by the world. I've been very blessed to spend this past semester with our college students, and I've learned so much from them. You see, I think they really understand these temptations. I think they really understand the predicament of our world. I mean, they've devoted this period of their lives to study and to learn, to acquire and to grow in wisdom and intelligence. And let me tell you, we have some of the wisest, some of the best and the brightest who come and who gather here in our fellowship. 
This is true. But they're at this place in life where everything is being graded and assessed and judged, and we tell them that future success, it depends on your performance, it depends on you living up to these measurements. And the world tells them that they must choose the right major, that they must be involved with the right groups, get the right internships, make the right connections, if they want to obtain the skill set necessary to go out into the world and obtain this sex, power, and money that will fulfill them. And they live with these narratives. They live with them every day. But perhaps it's concentrated, the weight of it is felt in their situation a little bit more. But we all live with these, right? I mean, we know these narratives. We all walk through this every day in our own way. Well, I want you to know that there is great hope. There is great hope because we have prophets in our midst. Don't know if you've noticed this. We have students who come to this place, who sit in our pews, who worship with us, who lead us in worship, who serve with us, And these students can be a prophetic witness to us and to this world. I've heard the lines, kids these days, this generation coming up. Maybe not in here, but I've heard this. And I don't know. Maybe there's some truth to that. But it's not really my experience. Not with the students that I've worked with. It's not the case. The students that I've worked with, the students that come here, part of this fellowship, I think that they really understand what it means to be a student right now, as well as what it means for what they'll become someday as engineers and teachers, as doctors, nurses, ministers, scholars, accountants, lawyers, businessmen and women, social workers, whatever they go on to do in the kingdom of God. I think they really get it, that they know that the validity of these pursuits are measured not by the wisdom of this world. They understand that the wisdom of the world has been confounded by the wisdom of the cross. Dr. David Garland comments on this passage that the cross was repugnant to ancient sensibilities and assailed the world's self-centeredness and self-destructive ways. It shows that the power of God's love is greater than human love of power. That's a good line. It shows the power of God's love is greater than human love of power. And let me tell you, I think we've got some students who really get this. And they've served as a prophetic reminder to me that my life is reoriented by the cross that we have a Savior who offers his own life for our sake. This act is both our salvation and our example. I think Paul expresses this sentiment most succinctly and probably most famously in a verse that many of you have memorized. Romans chapter 12, he urges us in view of God's mercy to offer ourselves as living sacrifice, to not be conformed, to the patterns of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so we do not come to the world with eloquence or human wisdom. We come in all humility, reliant on the power of God in us, because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger 
than human strength. Please pray with me. Lord, we praise you for victory won on the cross. We praise you for the salvation that it brings and for the example that it sets. We ask that by your power and spirit we would be equipped to bear our cross as well. We pray this by the wisdom and power of the Christ who is crucified. Amen. I do invite you now. Matt will be up front. If you are thinking about the decision of making this your church home or the place of Jesus Christ in your life, we invite you to come forward.